So greetings, everybody. Welcome to this week's podcast, which is all about the living, breathing tide. And I'm going. I'm choosing going forward that uh, to make this 100% a la radio because I really this is all about us focusing in, using our senses, and um, and really getting into things. And doing so with without the benefit necessarily of our of our eyes for the podcast duration, because it might sharpen the rest of our senses. And so, um, I am I am actually at the changing tide, and I chose to uh, have a, a a different location from my typical one in in uh, in fit with the topic this evening. So. Get yourself ready to, to really get into a, another environment and um, do so again as, as, as you please with, with any uh, breezes that you, you might want to have, um, any, uh, and any, um, any tastes that you might want to have accompanying you. But, um, you know, what, whatever works for you, um, that'll get you kind of like into the mode, into the zone, that kind of thing. So there's this place, a place where we dive and delve into the wonders of our surroundings, where the law is consilience, a jumping together of knowledge, forming a bridge that strongly connects the sciences, the arts, the humanities. A place where natural systems and human systems coexist in harmony, where connections are sought between humans and nature, humans and humans, nature and nature. And yes, a place where land, the living layers of earth, is an equal member of the community with rights just like humans. In this special place, the sense of wonder is our sustenance. You've just arrived at the land health ecosystem. So again, we are gonna get into this thing called the living, breathing tide. My hope is that you begin to breathe with the tide just as I'm doing um, by the time my podcast is over. So to kind of get us into that frame of mind, let's think about breath for a second. You know, the stuff that we may or may not take for granted, but it sustains us. So just think, think about that concept of the fact that for any life to exist for however long it exists, there must be constant breath, constant breathing from birth to death of any organism. And really, I'm gonna stretch that out and say any ecosystem. So throughout our cast, let's, let's focus on our breath. There's gonna be some exercises that I'm just gonna weave in, but I encourage you all to have a little bit more heightened awareness of your own breath. It's totally gonna to fit with the subject matter. So kind of getting us in, in the mode I'm going to lead us in a couple in a couple breath sessions and I'm talking short here so if you if you care to join in with me I would say breathe in hold for two three four and then breathe out hold for two three and four try it again um, breathe in and then hold at the top, 
for two, three, four, and then breathe out. Hold for two, three, four. Now let's do it a couple more times and let's just change the words. So, as you breathe in, you're saying high tide, two, three, four, and now let it all out. Low tide, two, three, four. Breathe in. I'm sorry, high tide, two, three, four. Low tide, two, three, four. And as you're not breathing in that two, three, four, you're at slack tide. Okay. So where am I right now? I'm in one of my favorite little locations in the city. I have a totally personal connection to where I am right now. The location, if you ever want to check this out on your own, is called Pier 53. It's also called Washington Avenue Pier. And it's this pier. Basically, to me, it's more or less a peninsula now. It juts out in the Delaware River, kind of near where Washington Avenue would dead end. Washington crisscrosses with Columbus or Delaware Avenue. And, um, and then uh, if you keep walking towards the river, you'll end up finding this, this pier. And my connection to it is that I was in, actually led the design and construction of, of this pier that had become dilapidated over the years. And we turned it into basically a, like a living ecosystem of native plants and some other uh, art features and a boardwalk and things like that. The pier has an entirely rich, rich history um, in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. It was actually the equivalent of Philadelphia's Ellis Island as uh, over a million immigrants used this pier as their first port of entry to the United States. And then uh, later on, it was bought by Pennsylvania Railroad and it became this mercantile pier, just like so many others on Delaware Avenue. By the time the 60s rolled around and the economy was depressed and Philadelphia was depressed, this and most of the other municipal piers in, um, along the, uh, the Delaware and Philadelphia kind of just went derelict. This one actually had a fire in the 60s and very cool buildings burnt down. And um, it basically um, lay relatively untouched for, um, for a few decades before the uh, Delaware River Waterfront Corp um, became sort of the, uh, the landholder of sorts on behalf of the city of this and several other piers. And uh, back in 2014 is when uh, the group that I led, Applied Ecological Services, um, that's when we finished the uh, construction on this pier. And if you come here now, you'll see blowing trees and grasses and plants and all kinds of things, let alone you're bound to see something called a skink, if you're lucky, which is a reptile that was thought to be extinct in this area, not extinct overall, um, the five-line skink. You'll, you'll find countless turtles sunning themselves on rocks and logs. You could see fish when you look in the water. And the bird life here is robust. So that's, that's where I am. I'm hoping that I can speak over the sounds, but at the same time, you can pick up because you're hearing the incoming tide. I uh, tried to time this with, um, with, with low tide, which I believe was about an hour ago if the tide charts were right. Um, as I look around, 
either I was off or the tide charts were off because the, the tide is a lot higher than it would be an hour after low hide. I'm sorry, low tide, but, uh, but it's still relatively low. So you can see different things exposed that wouldn't ordinarily be exposed. So that's where I am. So back into our subject matter, like what is this thing called the tide? So technically the tide is like, is a periodic or alternate um, rise and fall of, of a body of water, like an ocean or a bay or something connected with the ocean. Um, and it, it, it occurs regularly. Um, throughout most places on our planet, it occurs two times a day. Um, in some places it might only, you know, you might have one high tide, one low tide. And the forces of, basically the gravitational forces of the moon are really what control tides. There's also gravitational forces to a lesser extent of the sun. And I imagine that any other kind of celestial body that happens to make its you know, way in the vicinity of our solar system um, could also have some gravitational impact on the, uh, on the Earth and hence the, uh, the, the tides. Um, but it's something that we, we sometimes notice. We also, if we live in Philadelphia, we may not notice it. And yet if you come to where I am or if you come to various places in Philadelphia, you'll, you'll see that, that, that the level of the water in the course of several hours can either rise or drop by, by at least seven feet. So, you know, two times a day on the lower part of the Schuylkill River, on the lower part of Darby Creek, on the lower part of Frankfurt Creek, Bokesson Creek, the Delaware River, um, you, you get these, these really dramatic changes. And if you're, if you're out during these changes, it looks different, but it also sounds different. The lapping sounds sound different. Um, you hear different things. You smell different things. As more gets exposed, there's more stuff that makes it to your olfactory center. So it's really a, uh, it's quite a dynamic environment. And, and the way Philadelphia has been built up over the last few centuries, we've kind of like lost our feel of a tidal city. But Philadelphia is, from a historic standpoint, it's entirely a tidal city. It's entirely a transitional zone location when you think about the old center of, of, of Philadelphia kind of being sandwiched between the Schuylkill and the Delaware River. Um, we're, we're, we're totally a tidal place. But again, um, you know, for reasons we'll talk about a little bit, um, that a lot of that has been like either erased entirely or, um, or, or, or very much curtailed. So I'll also say that what humans have done is we've kind of impaired the breadth of the tide in urban environments like Philadelphia. So to me, what the tide really is beyond that, you know, that periodic up and down, you know, tied to the moon, et cetera, it's, it's also the breath of a superorganism. And so if you've ever heard that term or you haven't, there's a few different concepts of like what a superorganism can be. Um, technically, or sort of technically, a, a superorganism is like an organized society um, of, of individuals that basically act as an organic whole. Um, and so like, you know, ant colonies, there, yes, there are individual ants, but they're kind of programmed. And so the ant colony behaves as a whole in a lot of ways. When you see ants like going to a source of food and lining up one behind another, um, they're, or protecting the queen, things like that, that's, they are living proof of something that's highly successful, um, which could be termed a superorganism. 
if you've ever gotten stung by a yellow jacket, which is a species of wasp, you, you're lucky if you only got stung once. Yellow jackets um, follow the same principle of bees in, in, that, in, in that they're part of colonies. And when there's danger, they, they, they use their pheromones to like in, instantaneously co communicate with one another. And so you inadvertently step on their nest. Next thing you know, you feel these stings and you generally get, there's generally more than one. That's the, you, you basically got stung by a super organism. So, but if you can, you can carry that concept out beyond just like, you know, a group of individuals of a species, a lot of scientists, myself included, consider like the upper layers of the soil to be a, a, a super organism. So like the, if, you, if you look up like what the layers of the soil are all about, it's a fascinating place. If, um, if you Google um, organisms and soil, you'll find that there are literally billions of species of microorganisms that inhabit our soil. And you'll also find that, that, that scientists who discover things and then give them species names have only named like a fraction of what lurks in our soil. But the soil in a lot of ways, like a healthy soil layer that doesn't get you disturbed by humans, um, it, it also kind of acts as, like, as, as one overall compatible um, organic system. And so a, a, lot of, a, a lot of people consider that to be a form of superorganism. Soil literally breathes. If you don't have oxygen you know, um, penetrating into the pores of, of the soil, you're not going to have a lot of life there in, in, in the root zone. You can find books that talk about how like trees in effect can kind of communicate with one another through their root zones. And roots have all kinds of intricate relationships with fungi, which are neither plant nor animal. And so, um, and, and, and that also like take, you know, helps them not only communicate, but, it, but, but they're also involved in, in, in how, trees and other plants you know get their food it's 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 an intricate intricate system and and when it's healthy it, it in a lot of ways it kind of acts as this one organic whole so that's you know that's what a superorganism is and when the tide is doing its thing in a relatively healthy manner um, the tide is part of a superorganism and the superorganism I'd be referring to would be like this complex of habitats that would comprise like our coasts. So if you've ever been to the beach, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the seaward side of, the, uh, of, of an island, like a, a barrier beach island, like Long Beach Island, you know, that would be part of the complex. And then it would, it would also entail what's called the estuary. The estuary is a big, huge transition zone that, um, that comprises like all these different tidal areas. So you know, you can have a tidal marsh, you can have a tidal swamp, you can have a tidal river, a tidal creek. Um, so it, it, so if you've been, you know, in the bay, you're in the estuary, but it really all acts together and it, in ways that we'll talk about. But the thing that actually gives it life, it, in a lot of ways, it's the tide. You know, the tide, when it, when it, when it comes in, it brings with it all kinds of oxygen. Sometimes it also brings in new nutrients. And if you've ever been to New England and you've explored a tide pool um, in the rocks, or if you've ever been, you know, at the Jersey Shore and you and you're down at low tide and, and you look at the uh, at the shoreline, you see a lot of exposed little clams and things. Sometimes you might find a hermit crab. Well, those those kinds of um, you know mollusks generally. There's 
various shellfish and other organisms, they have the ability to, to hold on to little droplets of water from which they can derive dissolved oxygen for a period of time. But you, you, can, you can bet that they go <sighs> when, that, when that next um, high tide comes and kind of like replenishes them. Um, so really, I, I think of the tide as the ventilator or the respirator of, um, of, the, of this complex of the estuary connected with the coast. So in other words, the shore. Um, so that's, that's what we have going on. And you know, I wanna talk a little bit about specifically now like Philadelphia. So make sure on your own, you're, you're, uh, you're making yourself really get into this and, 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 and breathe. I gotta breathe and talk. You guys can just you know, breathe in. You know, and, and now be thinking to yourself as your, as your mantra is high tide, low tide. And then if you like that period of, of time when you kind of hold it before you take your next breath, that's your slack tide. That's the time when the tide kind of seems to not move. It's just kind of still. Um, it's a magical time um, you know, in, in any kind of uh, tidal ecosystem when you, when you get that slack tide. So Philadelphia, like I said earlier, the tide was everywhere. Um, Philly was an estuary. I'll still call it an estuary, but it's really a damaged um, uh, um, uh, estuary with a lot of respiratory issues. So um, the Schuylkill River is arbitrarily tidal where Fairmount it meets it. So basically where the, where the uh, art museum sits, that's on top of Fairmount. And you have a dam there that, uh, that was used to divert water when Philadelphia was the, uh, the, the, basically the state of the art in terms of getting drinking water to its citizens. Um, the cost of doing that was damming up the tidal Schuylkill where, the, you know, where that dam was built um, to, uh, to then pump water up to the top of Fairmount into reservoirs, which are right now the basement of the Philadelphia Art Museum. So by virtue of doing that, the, um, this, the, uh, the people in charge of Philadelphia back then basically said the tide stops here. But to this day, from the falls of the Schuylkill that we have now, um, all the way to the Delaware, that's part of the tidal estuary of Philadelphia. Many of the creeks of Philadelphia have unfortunately been buried. Um, some have not. So if you um, follow Copps Creek and then it meets Darby Creek, Darby Creek becomes, you know, it becomes a, a part of the tidal estuary and flows underneath I-95 in an, in, in an impeded manner, but it flows nevertheless. That's part of the tidal estuary. Um, you know, Frankfurt Creek is very impaired, but it does meet the Delaware. So the lower part of Frankfurt Creek, it's tidal. A beautiful place to appreciate some idea of what things used to be like when the creeks met up with the with the with the river um, is the uh, the mouth of the Pennypack Creek. If you went there now, you could you, you, and and uh, paddled up a little bit, you'd find still, I believe, still this year, um, you know, this large nest of bald eagles that have been nesting there over the past several years. Um, and it's so it's beautiful, and you can and you can watch the tide go up and down where Pennypack meets the Delaware. So the Phil Philadelphia has vestiges, but they really are just vestiges. You know, thinking, thinking back, you know, when, when Native Americans um, lived here, you, you basically had a complex of freshwater estuary. So estuary 
is, is, is a system that's highly transitional, but you think of this estuary in terms of when freshwater systems make their way towards saltwater systems. Um, the tide is definitely something that makes an estuary an estuary. And so um, you might not yet, for the most part, have salt water in Philadelphia, but you know that the Delaware continues south. And, and when it gets to around Wilmington, something called the salt line generally tends to make itself um, felt around there. And then the further, the further downstream you go, the river gets more brackish, saltier. And then at, you know, at some point you, you, you enter the salty Delaware Bay, which then connects with the ocean. So systems that are basically connected to the ocean in some capacity, they're considered estuaries. And so in the early days of Philadelphia, before it was called Philadelphia, it was flat out gorgeous around here. Um, if you were, if you know where I-95 is, um, as it crosses over Old City, it's basically crossing over where the river used to flow. So think about the streets of Philadelphia that were uh, laid out in grid fashion by William Penn and Thomas Holm back several centuries. Well, Front Street was called Front Street for a reason. It was, it, it's also could be called First Street, but it, but, it, but it fronted the river basically. In front of Front Street, it, the, the equivalent of about a half a block or so in much of the old section of Philadelphia, you have Water Street. In some places, Water Street has just kind of been obliterated and you can't find it anymore. But in other places, you can still find little sections that are called Water Street. Water Street was literally on the water. Boats would park at docks on Water Street. So basically anything um, east of Front Street, so think about all of Delaware Avenue, um, all the piers, you know, the Society Hill Towers, Penn's Landing, all that stuff, that was all part of the flowing Delaware River. And the Delaware River was not at all like it is now, this channel that, that, that can be now, I, I don't know what they have it with dredging up to now, at least 45 feet at its deepest. Um, it was this sprawling river and, and it was a sprawling breathing river. It didn't just flow downstream with a, with a tide that rose up, it, it, it breathed. So think about this, where I mentioned the Society Hill Towers. If you go to where Spruce Street is right now, now we're gonna go upstream. So we're gonna go backwards from the point that I'm gonna kind of walk you through. But if, you're, if you know where Spruce Street is, if you start um, walking west on Spruce Street from the river, you pick up Dock Street. And then if you decide that you wanna make a right onto Dock Street, Dock Street is one of those curvy streets and uh, it does not follow the grid. And Dock Street is this cobblestone street that, that was paved over Dock Creek, where people like uh, Ben Franklin and, and, and other uh, cronies would dump, you know, feverishly dump their garbage because um, back then they thought, oh, you can, a tidal system is great as a dump because you can throw garbage in and, and hopefully the tide takes it out to sea. It's almost like, you know, getting free um, trash service. And so, um, so Dock Creek got, got filled in a long, long time ago. But Dock Creek was a breathing tidal creek. Um, at high tide, it, it, it would be filled with water like within a stone's throw of where um, Independence Hall is today. And then at low tide, a lot of it would drain out. And if you had a boat, you, you, you might need to like, you know, park it somewhere until the, uh, until the tide came back in. But again, you, you had breathing of the tides making, making their way well in, into the old Philadelphia. So the, the, whole, the whole array of the Schuylkill River, the Delaware River, um, all of that was uh, it, what, like that, 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 
that whole setup, it lived and breathed. It was teeming with life. Much of it was what would be called a marsh um, with waving grasses that could, be, that could be growing like six, eight, 10, 12 feet tall. Um, some people talk about the sturgeon that, that swam up these tidal estuary areas. And, and you would find, um, you know, some said they were so thick, either shad or sturgeon, it, it was if, as if you could walk on their backs, okay? That's, um, they, those fish in, still swim here in some capacity, but not nearly like, like they used to. So, so it was quite, quite the dynamic living, breathing area. Um, we as humans have become incredibly adept at building new land with what's called fill, F-I-L-L. And so, so much of Philadelphia, you know, you could say Philadelphia is also Philadelphia with an F-I-L-L. Um, but if you think of Battery Park City in, in New York City, um, that, that's an extension of Southern Manhattan done in a similar fashion that Philadelphia has extended its, it, its area along the rivers. When they, when they uh, dug the foundations for the original World Trade Towers, they had a whole lot of, um, of what do you call it, um, you know, ex excavated rock and material. They needed to put it somewhere. So again, they, they had the, the, the bright idea to take that fill, dump it on the, um, you know, and, and dump it in the Hudson River, and then they build a new, uh, you know, area of residences on top of it. So, so that's, that's how Philadelphia used to be. A great place to get a, a, a sense of, of, of more what Philadelphia used to be is John Hines Wildlife Refuge. But it's, it's while it can be really interesting to, um, to, to go to Hines and get that sense, it's also quite sad because there's this graphic. If you go to Hines, um, at a time when the, uh, the environmental center there is open, ask if they'll let you into the room in the back. They'll know exactly what you're asking for. And there's this old, cool little um, low-tech graphic. And it's a machine that, that has like three different maps of Philadelphia. And each time you press a button, you can go from map one to map two to map three. And what you have with those maps is our... Um, and by the way, you're, you're hearing the sounds of the, of the river in a place where people are actually able to enter it. So my, regardless of how it sounds, I'm proud that the place where I'm sitting on the pier that I call the beach is a place that lets people actually access the river compared to other places like Race Street Pier and, uh, and Penn's Landing. So the, the, uh, it might be a little bit of a distraction, but um, hopefully you can also welcome that distraction because it means that people are actually able to get in touch with the living, breathing tide. Um, but back to John Hines, this, this, uh, this cool little graphic that they have when you press the button shows you a map of, of um, a, a big chunk of Philadelphia. And it shows it in the 1800s when we were already filling and, 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 and laying out streets. But at that point, and it might be as late as 1890, if I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly, there were still about 5,000 acres of tidal estuary around Philadelphia. The Schuylkill River had these things called mud flats in it. You can see that on the map. There was a lot of green referencing wetland on this map. You press the next button, it takes you to like the, the 1950s. And, um, and that 5,000 has been reduced to like, like about a, like a thousand or something like that. Um, and then sadly, you press the button again, and it takes you to, to modern times. And what's left of the entire estuary of Philadelphia is for, is about 450 acres. 
So really in, the, in a century's time when, there were, when we took like countless, countless acres, reduced them down to 5,000 or so acres, only a tenth of those 5,000 acres still remain in Philadelphia. And then get this, only about 250 acres is tidal, meaning it's, it's connected to the tide. There's other parts of John Hines that are called an impoundment, but they don't go up and down. Um, they don't live and breathe like, the, like, like, like tidal estuaries do. So if you think about that, if you wanna get a sense of old Philadelphia estuary personality, you're reduced to like a couple hundred acres around John Hines. Um, you could also feel it a little bit again if you go to the mouth of the Pennypack Creek. You can also feel it if you go to FDR Park and there's a couple lakes which are not natural features, but there's a little bit of up and down in one or two of the lakes at, at FDR Park, which is just, again, it's like the last gasp if you can, if you can bear with me on that one. <sighs> that's not super healthy, but, it's, but that's a piece of estuary that you're still getting to see trying to breathe up and down. So, um, so we've really done a number on Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia Airport, how about it? The, the Philadelphia Airport, it's built in the river, okay? And what are we doing right now in the Philadelphia Airport? We have like a 40 or so year plan to add another runway in, in the Delaware River. Um, think about that when you know what's happening to sea level and see how much sense that makes. And when you go to the Philadelphia Airport, you also get to see remnants of the estuary. Picture yourself taxiing down a runway and you look out the window if you have a window seat and you see things that might look like puddles basically or little pools of water what they are they're the remnants of tidal estuary the only reason they're intact is there's an endangered species called a red-bellied turtle that's you know that's that's threatened um in um in pennsylvania and so it's not really very good habitat they're sitting ducks for <laughs> lack of a better word um, for, um, you know, for skunks and other things that are going to eat their eggs when they lay them because there's no cover there. But that's our estuary. That's the Philly estuary today. It's kind of it's sad. We basically snuffed out most of the breath of the estuary. And, you know, and if you can come to a place like I'm sitting right now, you're lucky. There's just not a lot of access to experience what's left of that tidal ecosystem. Um, but if you look for it, you can find it. So... Humans are really good at making us sad with things like dams and levees and fill and things like seawall, which also cut off the breath. So anyway, I think it's time for you to take another, like, you know, just if that, if that got you too stressed, let's do a tide in, high tide, ah, low tide. All right, and I'm gonna spend a little bit of time in that slack area so I can get rejuvenated too. All right, I think I'm a little bit more rejuvenated. Um, I have the benefit of the breeze all around me and the lapping water. So let's, let's take a trip down the shore. What is this thing called the shore anyway? Um, in my memory, given that basically I'm half Philly guy and half shore guy with, with a whole host of relatives that um, you know, that, that to this day live on Absecon Island. Um, I remember going down with my grandpa and um, back when, uh, you know, when I was a kid, there was an Atlantic City Expressway. My grandfather was very frugal. Um, we usually made our way down on the Black Horse or the White Horse Pike. But I have these, like, these wonderful memories where I always knew whether it was day or night when we were getting close to the shore. Um, if, I, if I tick those memories up a little bit, um, you know, to, to modern times, you know, I, I do most of my uh, 
traveling down there on the Atlantic City Expressway. Um, but while, while I share my ride with you, I invite you to, to get in your own car right now and, uh, and, and think about whatever um, route to the shore that you take. You know, there's, it, it's, a lot of it is similar in, in form and function, just the roads are different, whether you go to Long Beach Island, Absecan Island, Ocean City, you know, the Wildwoods, whatever, whatever route you're taking, you have to eventually head east, you have to approach the ocean, and at some point, you're probably going to be going over a combination of some kind of causeway and some kind of drawbridge setup. But so picture that as I as I take you from the, uh, you know, my, my favorite um, little experience to this day when I take when I head into the to the shore on the Atlantic City Expressway. And to me, everything changes at the quarter toll. And the quarter toll right now is probably way more than a quarter. But when you um. You pay your main toll on on the uh, expressway, you know, somewhere maybe 18 or so miles out. Um, but when you get closer to the shore, when you only have a few miles to go, you you're in effect riding over Pleasantville, and I think they call it the Pleasantville toll. But once you throw your quarter, if you still throw a quarter into that little uh, basket, next thing you know, if you are looking out the window, the, uh, the 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 landscape changes and you start seeing water around you. You start seeing pockets of it. You know, it's pretty built up. So you might see like um, really channelized water. It might not feel really natural yet, but there's, but there's still water. Better yet, roll down your windows and what do you smell? You start smelling these cool, I think, cool earthy smells. Um, you, you can almost taste some of those smells. You know, I, I like the smell of sulfur and the smell of kind of a, uh, decomposition i i view the area that of, of, of um of wetlands where you where you tend to smell that um that hydrogeny sulfide smell um while things are being decomposed they're also laying the, the formation for for new life and so it's a constant um repurposing of of material and uh and, and the lower the tide gets the more you can smell that activity going on you can uh you, you even just with your window rolled down and your arm on the side of your door, you can kind of feel it, right? The, the, you can feel that the air gets a little bit heavier, maybe a little bit stickier. Look at your windshield and you might, all of a sudden you have to put on your windshield wiper and there's no rain to, to behold. It's just that it's, it's, it's just in the air. You're, you're at the shore. If it's nighttime, you're going to hear stuff. You might, you, you might be lucky enough to hear some water sloshing around. You might start hearing the laugh of a laughing gull or some other birds that are that are uh, that are in the vicinity. So, so you've 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 basically made your way to this thing that's called the shore. And so we always say, let's go to the shore. Let's go down the shore. When we're Philadelphians or Jersey people, we we know what we mean. But um, but not everybody knows what, especially not everybody knows what it means to say down the shore. Although it really is. Um, to this day, New Jersey is actually sinking. So it's. We are really going down to the shore. We're not flatly going to the shore. We're going down. But um, this whole complex that, you, that we all call the shore, that's been shaped by currents and tides. It's a combination of barrier beach islands, inlets, and anytime you have an inlet, you can probably call it an outlet, again, because it's breathing in and out. Um, and then you have all this bay area, this, this back bay area, this marshy area, and so really what you have when you're heading over the Margate Bridge into that part of Absecan Island, or you're heading over um, you know, the Pleasantville Toll, or you're heading over to the eastern sides of um, 
the Black Horse Pike or the White Horse Pike. You know, Route 30 is the, the old Lincoln Highway goes all the way to the ocean, basically. Um, when you're on those roads and you're heading towards the ocean, you're, you're getting out into this complex. And so you start seeing these grasses. You start seeing other, um, you know, you, you start seeing more birds. You start, if it's the spring or the summer, you see a lot of green. So, um, so that, that whole area is basically, it, it, you can call it estuary, but we can also call it tidal salt marsh. And so I, I brought a little book with me. It's an old book from the 60s, 1969 to be exact. And I'm going to treat you to, to, to just three pages of reading, which will kind of like give a little bit more um, life to what I'm talking about of what this thing called the salt marsh is. Now, the, the book was written again in 1969 by John and Mildred Teal, and it's called Life and Death of the Salt Marsh. So just kind of as you're breathing while I read, um, take it in. And, uh, and you might get some good visuals or some good feels or sounds just out of their small, short introduction to, their, uh, to what I think is a timeless work. Um, this is relevant back in 69, if not more so, um, as it is today. So here it goes. Along the eastern coast of North America, from the north where ice packs grade upon the shore to the tropical mangrove swamps tenaciously holding the land together with a tangle of roots, lies a green ribbon of soft, salty, wet, low-lying land, the salt marshes. The ribbon of green marshes, part solid land, part mobile water, has a definite but elusive border, now hidden, now exposed, as the tides of the Atlantic fluctuate. At one place and tide, there is a line at which you can say, here begins the marsh, at another tide, the line, the beginning of the marsh, is completely inundated and looks as though it had become part of the sea. The marsh reaches as far inland as the tides can creep and as far into the sea as marsh plants can find a root hold and live in saline waters. The undisturbed salt marshes offer the inland visitor a series of unusual perceptions. At low tide, the wind blowing across Spartina grass sounds like wind on the prairie. When the tide is in, the gentle, music of moving water is added to the prairie rustle. There are sounds of birds living in the marshes. The marsh wren advertises his presence with a reedy call, even at night when most birds are still. The marsh hen, or clapper rail, calls in a loud carrying cackle. You can hear the tiny high-pitched rustling thunder of the herds of crabs moving through the grass as they flee before the advancing feet or the more leisurely sound of movement they make on their daily migrations in search of food. At night when the air is still and other sounds are quieted, an attentive listener can hear the bubbling of air from the sandy soil as a high tide floods the marsh. The wetlands are filled with smells. They smell of the sea and salt water and of the edge of the sea, the sea with a little iodine and a trace of dead life. The marshes smell of Spartina, a fairly strong odor mixed from the elements of sea and the smells of grasses. These are clean, fresh smells, smells that are pleasing to one who lives by the sea, but strange and not altogether pleasant to one who has always lived inland. Unfortunately, in marshes which have been disturbed, dug up, suffocated with loads of trash and fill, poisoned and eroded with the wastes from large cities, there's another smell. Sick marshes smell of hydrogen sulfide, a rotten egg odor. This odor is very faint in a healthy marsh. 
As the sound and smell of the salt marsh are its own, so is its feel. Some of the marshes can be walked on, especially the landward parts. In the north, the Spartina Patens marsh is covered with dense grass and may be cut for salt pay. Its roots bind the wet mud into a firm surface, but the footing is spongy on an unused hay marsh as the mat of other year's grass hidden under the green growth resists the walker's weight and springs back as he moves along. In the southern marshes, only one grass covers the entire marsh area, Spartina alterniflora. On the higher parts of the marsh near the land, the roots have developed into a mass that provides firm footing, although the plants are much more separated than in the northern hay marshes, and you squish gently on mud rather than grass. It is like walking on a huge trampoline. The ground is stiff, it is squishy and wet to be sure, but still solid as you walk about. However, jump, and you can feel the ground give under the impact and waves spread out in all directions. The ground is a mat of plant roots and mud on top of a more liquid layer underneath, which gives slightly by flowing to all sides when you jump down on it. As you walk toward the edge of the marsh, the seaward edge, each step closer to open water brings a change in footing. The mud has less root material in it and is less firmly bound together. It begins to ooze around your shoes. On the edges of the creeks, especially the larger ones, there may be natural levees where the ground is higher. Here the rising tide meets its first real resistance as it spills over the creek banks and has to flow between the close set plants. Here it is slowed and drops the mud it may be carrying. Here too, especially after a series of tides, lower than usual, the ground is firm and even dry and hard. Down toward the creek where the mud is watered at each tide, the soil is as muddy as you can find anywhere. When you try to walk across to the water at low tide, across the exposed mud where the marsh grass does not yet grow, hip boots are not high enough to keep you from getting muddy. The boots are pulled off on the first or second step when they have sunk deep into the clutching zone. There are no roots to give solidarity, nothing but the mud and water fighting a shifting battle to hold the area. At low tide, the salt marsh is a vast field of grasses with slightly higher grasses sticking up along the creeks and uniformly tall grass elsewhere. The effect is like that of a great flat meadow. At high tide, the look is the same, a wide flat sea of grass, but with a great deal of water showing. The marsh is still marsh, but spears of grass are sticking up through water, a world of water where land was before, each blade of grass, a little island, each island a refuge for the marsh animals which do not like or cannot stand submersion in salt water. So that basically ends the introduction. They continue to say this book is about the marshes of East Coast of North America. So I hope you like can get more of a feel of that salt marsh to tune you in on some of the sounds you're getting. Um, that's actually somebody um, in, in, the, in the water. Um, I will leave this call and, and go aid her, but I think she's totally fine. But, uh, but yes, there are people swimming in the tidal Delaware. And also, as I've sat here, the tide has kind of encroached on my concrete rock that I'm sitting on. And so um, if, you know, if I end on time, which I intend to, I should be safe, but the water's getting right near my, uh, near my bent legs. So I, let's, let's talk a little bit about you know, that introduction and what is going on at the shore right now? Well, sea levels increasing. The land of New Jersey happens on top of everything else for geologic reasons to be um, subsiding a little bit, sinking. 
And we humans have been really good still at, at putting more buildings in down there, filling in kind of like any area where we can legally build. So basically you have an endangerment. The, the entire complex called the salt marsh or called the, the, you know, the, that, the estuary at the, near the shore, the entire thing is endangered. Um, because listen to, to what's going on. The whole thing is a transition area and that's basically what an estuary or a wetland is. It's transition between upland and lowland, okay? Um, or upland and, 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 and open water. So just like the introduction to that book stated, you know, you, it one, you can go there during one part of the day and it looks like dry land. You can go to another part and, you, and, 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 and it might be even over your head. So, um, so while the transition that takes place with rising sea level, um, the, the coast can keep resetting itself, right? So at, at some point, people that live right on the edge of the shore facing the ocean, they're going to have to move their house. Um, or they're going to have to leave their house because at some point the ocean's going to take it over. So, so, the, so the beach can, can, can move inland. So that's, that's not really a problem. And in fact, a barrier beach island itself, it's not even a stationary object. It's, it, it, the, uh, the currents that predominantly move from north to south, they make beaches move. We anchor them so that they can't move or they don't move, but the beach wants to move south. The, the, the northern end wants to get eroded by water and the southern end wants to get accreted or like have, have accretion of, of um, sand on it so that the islands keep moving and they keep protecting the mainland. So it, at some point, the ocean's going to rise. It's going to throw us all out of there if we have buildings over there. And it's going to, it'll, it'll do okay. You can, you know, it'll, because, because it does, we don't have a choice. But think about that whole area you know, for me, think about that area from when I paid the quarter toll all the way to when I got to the back part of Absecon Island where Atlantic City sits. That's the area that right now is in for an incredible pinch. Because think about that. When you're in Pleasantville, when you're in Northfield before you head over the Margate Bridge, where, where, when you're in whatever the last mainland town is before you set, set your car onto that causeway, once you're on that causeway, that whole area with the blowing seagrass in it, the Spartina patens and the Spartina alterniflora, that is what you're looking at when you look out your window. It looks so soft, you kind of just want to roll in it. Um, it like what's happening is that's going to get pinched and pinched and pinched. And if people on the, uh, that are on the, um, the western part of that whole complex, if they don't move their houses and they insist on staying there and just building up seawalls and dikes and things like that, then that salt marsh will literally die. It'll literally suffocate. The tide will keep coming in, but that, but that, that breathing in and out of the salt grasses, the little baby flounder that try to get their start in life there, the blue crabs that are there, you know, that, that marsh wren's not going to have, if, if the grass goes, the marsh wren's going to have to go elsewhere to, to weave its nest within the, uh, the reeds of, of the salt marsh. Um, it's really, 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 um, you know, problematic. And, um, and we know this, but we're not really yet doing anything about it. So, so that's, that's what's going on in this area. So like, like, what do we do about that? One, I think it's, it's a good time for you to take a couple breathe, breathes in or breaths in and out because that's, that's, a, that's a pretty stressful question. But, um, but you know, in, in, in a nutshell, being very simplistic here, um, what do you do about it? It's easy yet difficult. 
And what I mean by that is you simply move, okay? The Philadelphia airport, um, when I, I was once on a, uh, on a bike ride to study geology. It was put on by um, uh, the Hidden City folks. And the individual that was leading the bike ride at the time, also during his day job, I believe, was the project manager for the airport expansion. And at one point, he was talking a little bit about that. And I said, hey, what's your guys' game plan for the airport um, after you build that runway and sea level basically wants to take it over? Um, you know, what, what are you going to do? What's the plan for that that you guys have in place? And his answer was, you know what? There really is no plan, but I'll be retired by then. And, I, and that, that sat with me you know, ever since that day. That's what we do. But people don't want to hear this, but yo, move the airport. Okay, if you have a 40-year plan to expand the airport, go look for some defunct military base, you know, some, some plot of land. Maybe it's a brownfield. You know, like there are huge areas of land within, you know, like a half hour or an hour radius of Philadelphia. Maybe they're in South Jersey. But find an area of land that can act as our, as our airport, right? O'Hare Airport is not in, in the center of Chicago the way, the way Midway is, is, is near, near the, uh, you know, the urban center. We don't need an airport where it is right now, given that it sits in the river anyway and is only gonna get inundated more and more as time goes on. So you move it. You might not want to, but you can, and you, and you have 40, 50 years to, you know, th that you're already planning to add to it. Take those 40, 50 years and build an airport so that at some point you have one going up and you have ours in, in use. And at some point you make the switch. And then you know what you do? You let the river breathe. You let it, you let it reclaim, get rid of some of the nasty um, chemicals and stuff that are at the airport. Let the Delaware take back its land. Okay. That's, that's what you do. You know, if you're living in a house somewhere, move. Some houses can easily be moved. Others can't knock it down and go somewhere else. But really, I mean, it's, it, people don't want to hear this, but you know, what do you do? But if, if the salt marsh goes um, and in, like one of the most productive ecosystems in the entire world goes as well, you know, where all these babies, whether they be, whether they be crustaceans or whether they be fish or whether they be birds or whether they be plants, that's it's where they get their start in life. It's also natural stormwater management. It's, it's, it prevents flooding. If New Orleans had not filled all its wetlands, Katrina would not nearly have been the catastrophe that it was. So, so that's, that's what you do. You don't want to hear it, but you, but you, but you got to move. You got to give this, you got to give the tides room to breathe and, and breathe productively. They're going to breathe anyway, but sometimes their breathing is going to, is going to inundate the, the salt marsh. And if the salt marsh can't, can't have a low point where the plants can, can, can rise above, then the salt marsh is going to die. So, so that's, that's what you do, but, but, but don't worry about that right now, okay? Um, another thing that you do is you do what we've done at the beginning and we're gonna do to close this. Um, breathe, okay? Do that, breathe in, breathe out. Um, breathe in with the tide. And literally, I'm, the, the timing is right because water is literally an inch from my toe and uh, with the next gust of wind, I'm gonna get a little wet, so I'm gonna get up and move. Um, and, but do exactly what I'm doing. Go and breathe, get familiar and, and intimate with your breath, and then get intimate with the, the living breath of the tide. That's what you do. And one, it's gonna be, it's gonna feel good, okay? It's gonna feel right to do that. So what I'm saying is not just do, do the in-out breathing, but get, go somewhere where you can, 
use your senses and be at one with what the tide is doing. So that means, you know, bring your nose and your olfactory capabilities and, um, and smell what it smells like. Go out to the tide, hang there for a while. Smell the difference between low tide and high tide. You know, like the kids around me are doing, get, get your feet wet, get your whole body wet, roll in it. Let the sand or, or go, go through your toes. Get, let the mud go through your toes, okay? So, so touch it, okay? Taste it. If you, if you go into a salt marsh and you see this, uh, this like twiggy looking plant, sometimes it has a red tinge to it. It could also be, it's often green. It's called salicornia. It's called saltwort. If you're not too, or glasswort. If you're not too sure what it, what it is, check a guidebook. And when you know you have it, eat it. And you're gonna, you're gonna get the, it's edible. And it's like eating the sea. It's like, it's a burst of salt. Ah, man, it's like salty celery for free. And you can find that in, in, in any decent salt marsh, okay? So taste it. And then listen. Listen to the birds. Listen, listen to the lapping. You know, li listen to the, all the, the, the intricate sounds that you hear. And do this anywhere. Do it at the ocean. Do it at the Delaware River. Go just try to find one of those tidal lakes at FDR Park. You pick. But the, in, the, the, the message I want to leave you with is reconnect. Reconnect to your roots. We came from the sea. We started as these single-celled algae-like organisms and that, that basically proliferated into all kinds of things, including humans. But we really did rise you know, from the tidal seas. Reconnect with your roots. Um, the, the more you can be in it, feel it, you start to get it. And if, if, if people who lived on the ocean in their, in their high rises or in their beautiful houses on stilts right now, um, if they just look at it, it might be a beautiful view, but they're not getting it. But when you go out into it, when you go into the back bay in a, in a kayak, when you, when you just sort of just, you know, go with a buddy and walk into it so that if, you're, if your foot does get caught in mud, you got someone there with you to pull you out, feel it, okay? When we start, like, um, understanding systems firsthand, we, have, that we are part of the ecosystem, and, um, and, and it's, all, it's all one big ecosystem that, that we're part of. The more we, we, we reconnect ourselves with it, we'll, we're gonna, the ideas are there. They will flow. But the, the more you get a feel for how it works and you're at one with it, then you're more likely to, 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 to be amenable to solutions that, that people might not want to hear. But you also get other ideas. It's inspiring. So the message to you then is immerse yourself, team with it, and do as Aldo Leopold would say. Um, we're all part of the, of the community. That means that the tide, the living, breathing tide, it's just another member of the community. The estuary, it's just a member of the community. You and I on this call, we're all part of the community. The, the marsh wren, the marsh hen, okay? Um, the, the cormorants that you see diving for fish in, 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 in these tidal areas, the blue crabs, the, crustace, the other crustaceans, we're all part of the community. And so become part of the community, but invite everybody who belongs in the community to be part of the community. And that includes the living, breathing tide. So thanks for tuning in. I hope that the sounds made their way to you um, as clearly as they did to me. And I'll look forward to another adventure with you a week from now. Talk to everyone in a week.